Nehemiah, this chapter 8, and we're turning to the verse 1. Nehemiah, in the chapter 8, and the verse 1, we're going to read a number of verses from the next few chapters this evening. Our title this evening is The Revival We Need. The Revival We Need. Nehemiah chapter 8, please. And we're going to read from the verse 1 through to the verse 6. This is the word of the Lord, and we read there, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Mahasiah. And on, on his right hand and on his left hand, Pedadiah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashem and Hashbadana and Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Chapter 9, please, and the verse 1. Chapter 9 and the verse 1. It says, Here now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And from verse 4 right through to the end of chapter 9 you find the longest prayer in the Bible. And they look back over the history of Israel and they praise God for what they have done. And then because of this history of Israel, we read in verse 38 of chapter 9, and because of all this, because of all that God has done for us, because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. Now those that sealed were Nehemiah, and then comes a long list of names. A long list of names of people that signed to this covenant that they were going to live holy lives. And then in verse 28 we read these words at the end of this list of names. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons and their daughters, and everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they cleaved to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, 
and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts this evening. We arrive back in the book of Nehemiah and they've now rebuilt the city of God. They've built up the walls and the walls were protected for various reasons that we have thought about over previous weeks. And then in chapter 7, they repopulated the city. It's a long list of names, and the city was empty when they had finished. And of course, they start to repopulate the city. There were few, and then Nehemiah organizes people coming into the city and hands charge of the city across to other people. And of course, now comes the time in the second half of the book to re-instruct God's people regarding who they were and, of course, how they should live as his chosen people. And we said at the beginning of our series in Nehemiah that it can be clearly divided, the book can clearly be divided into two sections. And we're entering into the second section now. The first section has been the building, the reconstruction of the walls of the city of God. That is now complete. And now we move on to the second section, which really is from chapter 7 onwards. And that's to do with what we're going to call the reinstruction of God's people. They were taught God's word. And we see here in scripture, in the verses that we've read this evening, a revival that happened within God's people. Now this is important to note as we begin. In every genuine revival of God's people, and by that I mean when God's people again get to grips with God's truth, in every true revival, it makes such an impact on our lives that the fire of God is so clear in the church and it's clear in his people's hearts and affects not only the church's lives but it affects their homes it affects the church local church it affects the community around do you remember the two in the road to a mess they said one to another after spending time with the savior Luke's gospel and we read the account and they say to each other did not our hearts burn within us uh, while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures. Of course, they're speaking of the Lord Jesus, who had drawn near to them, and their hearts burned within them as they realized what, who they had spent time with. I wonder, dear Christian, when was the last time that your heart truly burned within you? Well, after spending time with the Savior. I wonder, do you long for the word of God? I wonder, do you long to pray for the people of God? I wonder, do you strive to live for God? I want to point out this evening three simple steps to revival within the church. Three steps to revival. Know that the Spirit of God would convict us and challenge us afresh this evening. The revival we need, the first step is that they turn, they return to the Word. They returned to the word. Look at Nehemiah chapter two, please, or, or chapter eight, please, in the verse two. And this is the words we've read this evening. Chapter eight and verse two. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. In the book of Nehemiah, this is the first time that we hear mention of Ezra's name. You will know that God's people, and we've thought about this, they've been exiled. Jerusalem had been destroyed. Nehemiah has now returned. He's finished the rebuilding of the walls. Then the exiles are beginning to return in chapter 7. And then we see Ezra entering the frame. 
And there's a return to the word of God. I want you to note that God's word was central. God's word was central. When Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, it was in the year 444 BC. Ezra was already there instructing the people in God's law. And when the work of the rebuilding of the wall was finished, Ezra held what we might call today a Bible conference. And that's what we read in these chapters this evening. And here in chapter 8, we see an emphasis on the book. In verse 1, it talks about the book. In verse 3, it talks about the book. In verse 5, it talks about the book. In verse 8, it talks about the book. In verse 18, it talks about the book. Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, this evening, if any local assembly wants to be God-honoring, the book must be central. It must be. Once the focus moves from the Bible, the local church is in trouble. I wonder here in the local church this evening, are we in need of a return to God's word collectively? Maybe individually? Many years ago, some of the first missionaries in Africa taught, taught those who had become Christians the importance of taking time and spending it with God each day. None of them had rooms or quiet places in the village to go to, so they went out into the jungle and each of them picked a certain place to go in the jungle and they would spend time with God there. And as more of them became Christians, all over the jungle you could see little small bare areas where the grass had been worn away. And that's where they knelt each day in prayer. That's where they spent time with the Lord. And if it was noticed that one of those, in one of those places the grass was beginning to grow again, the other Christians would go to that brother or sister and they would say to them, the grass is growing in your place. I wonder this evening, can I ask you, is the grass growing in your place? wonder do our hearts need revived to love the word of God again as we should. Wonder has the centrality of God's word in our lives been lost? You see, revival, dear believer, starts with you, and it starts with a rekindled love for the word of God again. Revival starts with you and I. Do you love God's word? I wonder, are you spending time in your room gleaning from it? I wonder, do you love spending time in your room gleaning from it? I wonder, do you have a devotional time? Do you have a time when you spend the time with the Word of God open before you and letting God speak to you? I hope it's not a rushed time. I hope it's a time that you spend careful attention, you, you, you pay careful attention to what God has to say to you. I hope you spend time communing with God. Because you see, in this book, this is where you get your advice. This is where you get your counsel for life. God's word, it's the authority on the church. It's the authority on marriage. It's the authority on the state. It's the authority on the home. And how the word of God must be central in all that we do in our lives. But I want you to notice something else. God's word wasn't only central. God's word had a place of honor. I wonder, can you picture the scene in God's word this evening? The people have gathered. There's Ezra and he stood in that wooden raised up platform or pulpit and all the people are there and they're able to hear him because he's raised up and he opens the book and he begins to read it. And as the people, as the people who are seated hear the word of God read, they, they stand to their feet. I think that's a beautiful picture. Look at verse 5. It says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and when he opened it, all the people 
was stood up. They knew they weren't listening to a mere man speaking about his own ideas. They were hearing the very word of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, Paul writes this to the church. He says, for this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from, from us, you received it, not as the word of men, but as the word of truth. The word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. I wonder, do we receive God's word as truth? Or do we just run about following mere men? Too many people in these days will follow a great pastor or a great preacher. And they become more obsessed with what they have to say, instead of thinking about what God has to say. Or even worse, some people today are happy just with their own opinion. Maybe you came, you came here this evening and you're just here at a mere habit or routine. You aren't maybe really expecting the Lord to speak to you. You've just gone through the routine. You're here because you're always here. I wonder, did you prepare your heart before you came here this evening for the living God to speak to you? To the child of God, this book before us this evening is the very word of truth. It is God breathed. It's infallible. It's an error. It's absolutely perfect. And we're called to honour and respect it. The believer should love it. The believer should live it. And he finds within its pages the things he needs to grow and to prosper in Christ. I wonder, have you forgotten that when we open the word of God, we're listening to the very words of God. That God has given us his words, his directions, his teaching in the very pages in front of us. Let me make this clear. The Bible doesn't contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. And we need to get that very clear. And the people gathered and they honoured the Word of God. As they listened to it, they stood. And they realised that it wasn't Ezra whom they were respecting. They realised that these words that Ezra was reading were the very words of God Almighty. And they stood in honour of God's Word. God's word was central. They honoured God's word. But I want you to see also that the people paid attention to God's word. They paid attention to God's word. Have a look here at chapter 8 and verse 3. It says, And he, Ezra, read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women, and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book. Of the law. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then, of course, in verse 6, they, they respond after hearing, And Ezra blessed the Lord the Greek one. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Note their position. They were prostrate. They were on the ground. They heard God's word. And they were prostrate on the ground. And they're crying out, Amen, Amen. They're saying, so be it. The words that we're hearing, so be it. Let them be. And we read in verse 9, at the very end, it says there, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. You know, as people listened to God's word, there were, as the people listened to God's word, their first response was one of conviction and one of grief. They mourned over their sin. The people paid attention and they responded. 
And as we listen and pay attention to the word of God, it brings conviction and it leads to repentance. And it can also bring joy because the word of God, the word is, is the word that wounds, but it also heals. You see, it wounds our sin. It wounds our pride. But yet, we find within it the words that can heal. Because we have a great saviour. You see, this is the revival we need. The people in chapter 8, they return to the word. But, but I want you to see also here that they return to prayer. They return to prayer. At the beginning of chapter 9, read with me. It says, now in the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. This, this here is the longest prayer in the Bible. We've mentioned that already. And it's a prayer all about revival. Isn't that interesting? Uh, does it not tell us something about God's heart? You see, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forget their sin and will heal their land. Prayer has always been central to revival. Now I know you're probably fed up of me talking about the revival 72 years ago in the Hebrides. It's over 72 years now. But you know, when I had the privilege of sitting with some of those folk who were saved in the 49 revival of Lewis, they preferred to call the revival an awakening. And as they each testified to me, as they all told their stories of how people were repenting, and even they found Christians who were, were coming before the Lord and confessing sin and hadn't been walking for a long time, as I listened to each, there were three of them that I had the privilege of meeting. And I spoke to each of them individually at different times in the three weeks I was on the island. And there was one common thing in every single one of their testimonies. And it was prayer. They said God's people were praying. But they said they weren't just praying. They were on their knees and they were seeking God's face. And they described it as awakening prayer. They said God had gripped his people again. That's how they put it. They said there was a darkness across the land. And God's people realized it. And God's people knew it. And they said that there was a awakening prayer. God's people sought God's peace and they prayed that God would move. And we need to return to prayer. The Bible testifies it. That prayer changes things. Our Christian heritage and church history testifies of it. And if we are to know true revival and God's people are to be on fire again and people in the community are to be saved as an outflowing of that personally and corporately, we need to return to prayer. So let me ask you, dear child of God this evening, point blank, as I have asked my own soul in the study in the past days, how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Do you pray? Have you prayed often today? Did you spend time asking the Lord to speak to you this evening before you came out to the meeting? You see, the natural response to reading God's word ought to lead us to our knees. This is how it happened in the people. Did you see the order it happened? Chapter 8, there was a revival in the word. Chapter 9, they returned to pray. And then after response to, to seeing how great a God we have and, and to seeing our sin, it should, it should lead us to our knees. You see, if we're to reach the heights of God, 
and experience revival in our own hearts, we must bow down. In, the, in this prayer, the people's hearts are revived again. And I believe that the God who was there in Nehemiah's day is the same God whom we worship this evening. And he's just as eager, I believe, to pour out his abundant blessings upon the church today if only we would humble ourselves and return to God's word and return to prayer. That we would come with humble, repentant hearts. You know, there were two pastors' ways. I think I may have shared this illustration with you before, but I think it's appropriate. There were two pastors' wives who were sitting out in the sun chatting while mending their husband's trousers. One of the ladies said, I can't understand why your church always has so much to praise God for and everything is going so well for you. And the other pastor's wife replied, well, these trousers might give you a clue. If you look closely, you will see I'm patching these trousers on the knees while you're patching the trousers on the seat. Why we need to get back on our knees and see God's face in prayer again. I'm not just talking to older ones, I think we need to enthuse our younger ones to be at the prayer meeting. And I think we need to be encouraging them. I've been encouraged in Lord's days the last few weeks, and I've told a few folk this, to see some of the children coming into the prayer meeting before the services, some of them of their own accord. And I think that's wonderful. And, and all credit to them, because they've been there week and, and week out of the past three or four weeks. And I praise God for that. But that will stand them in good stead if they're interested in sitting in a prayer meeting and seeking God's face. But we've got to encourage that, not discourage that. We've got to encourage our wee Christian young children to open their mouths in prayer, even in these meetings. And it's been a great encouragement to me to see them coming in on Lord's Day before both services. And it's great to let them sit and to listen to brothers and sisters cry out to the Lord that they'll move in the meeting. That's what they're witnessing. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that our children are there. But here is together as a church. We need to be united in prayer. We need to be petitioning the throne of grace. We need to pray directly to the Lord exactly what we want. You know, there's many Christians who have a desire to see people saved. There's many Christians who have a desire for revival, a desire for blessing, a desire to see God working in our local church assembly. And I'm sure if I were to chat to the majority, the majority of you in the room this evening on the way out, probably all of us on the way out, you would speak of your desire to see God move in a mighty way in these days. But let me ask you, is that desire translated into broken-hearted prayer before the throne of God? I wonder, as the people of God, when was the last time that we were so gripped by a specific burden that we prayed together that the Lord would do something and we prayed until something happened? I remember Trevor Matthews was testifying. Uh, Trevor was uh, the head of faith mission in Ireland for many years. Trevor Matthews, he, when he had retired, he was speaking at the testifying at the Edinburgh Convention a couple of years ago, and he spoke about prayer meetings uh, at the college. And he said, in his day, sometimes they would sit and pray until they knew they broke through. I thought that was a queer testimony. He says at times they would sit for hours and he says that they knew they hadn't broken through. He says, but they would just pray and pray and pray until they knew the Lord was in them. What a testimony that is. When do we pray like that? 
When do we hear of when prayer meetings like that in these days? You know, in the Lord's will, in the incoming year, we have a lot of things to pray for. We have a lot of special gospel efforts. Why we need to, as a church, come before the Lord and pray until God's in the room. That's what Trevor said, and that's never left me. I think it's so important what he said. What a lesson you can learn through that. We need to be united. You know, in Psalm 133, we read these words, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. This is the fact of true prayer. It's to be united, it's to be direct, and we need to get on our knees and go against and pray against the rampant powers of darkness because the devil hates what we're trying to do in this place. You see, when we pray, it changes things. We see divine intervention, and what we humbly cannot do, let me tell you, the Lord can do. Do you believe that? I wonder, can you see the people who return to the Word of God, they return to prayer, but finally this evening I want you to see that they return to holy living. There's a story that I feel helps illustrate what we read in Nehemiah chapter 10, and it, it, it gives the sentiment of it. In a certain church there was a man who always seemed to end his prayers with, and Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. One of the members of the church became weary of hearing the same insincere prayer request week after week because he saw no changes in this petitioner's life. The cobwebs were still there. So the next time this particular man began to pray, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, he interrupted, this other man interrupted, and he says, and Lord, while you're at it, kill the spider. You see, it's one thing. One thing to offer a passionate prayer of confession, such as the people did in chapter 9, and quite another thing to live the obedient life after you've said amen. In chapter 10, we see the people enter into a new covenant to live for the Lord, and they were committing to living holy lives. Believer in the evening, I wonder, do you need a revival in holiness? You know, in these days, this is one of the greatest attacks that the devil has in the church. He attacks holy living. And I, it disturbs me the things that some Christians speak about watching on Netflix and Prime and Disney and all these here things. It disturbs me because it just filters our minds. There's some Christians who are sitting on social media and there's these little videos that you can flip through. Every other video is taking the Lord's name in vain, swearing. Every other video has got images that a Christian simply shouldn't be looking at. Is it any wonder that the Lord isn't moving in these days? Is it any wonder? Believe it this evening, we need revival of holiness. Brian Edwards in his book on Revival said this, God looks for men who will be willing to surrender anything and everything as long as their life is kept clean. What do we surrender these days to the Lord? Without, without exception, goes on Brian Edwards, those whom God uses in revival are men and women who fear God and fear sin and nothing else. They take seriously the command to be holy as I am holy. Great revivalists of the past all had this emphasis on personal holiness. Now, I may not agree with this next statement fully, but I see the sentiment behind it. John Wesley declared in 1734, my one aim in life is to secure personal holiness. That's impossible in this life. But I know what he meant by this. 
My one aim in life is to secure personal holiness, for without being holy myself, I cannot promote real holiness in others. I think that's a great quote. My one aim in life is to secure personal holiness, for without being holy myself, I cannot promote real holiness in others. It's not just that the word of God is read in chapter 8. It's not just that they fall on their knees in chapter 9, but I want you to see that they submit to the word of God. With Nehemiah's name heading the list, here in chapter 10, we see now those that sealed, those that signed this document that they put together, and there's Nehemiah's name at the top of the list of 84 people who signed the covenant that they made with the Lord that day. And this declaration was signed and it affected whole lives. It was to do with a whole life living for the Lord. And that's what Christianity is meant to do. That's what being a child of God is meant to be. It's not just going to church on the Lord's Day, coming out to the prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, being involved in a couple of activities in the church throughout the week. That's not necessarily what it all is all about. Christianity is about the whole man. Salvation is about the whole man. For God wants the whole man. And the Lord Jesus Christ died for the whole man. It's to do with your daily walk. It's to do with every part of your life. I wonder, is there a part of your life that you're holding back from the Lord? I wonder, is it evident that you submit to God in all that you do? You see, they submitted to the Word of God, but I want you to see also that they were separated as the people of God. Boy, I tell you today, there's blurred lines everywhere. There's some Christians here living with one line, one, one, one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Here in Jerusalem, they were surrounded by idolatrous nations. We know that. We've seen the people coming in, and we've seen them trying to disrupt the work over the last few weeks, as we've been in Nehemiah. And the people, they were, they were, they were surrounded. The Israelites were surrounded by these idolatrous nations, and they, they weren't to be part of the social, religious, or business society of these other nations. And the law of Moses, it prohibited the Israelites from even living with or like the Gentiles. It was the job of the priests also to teach the people, when we read this in Ezra 44, 23, the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and clean. You see, in signing this covenant, the people were saying that for them, that God was to be central in all their daily affairs. Let me ask this evening, I wonder, is the Lord central in your life? Dear child of God, is Christ central in your affairs at work? Are you completely honest in business? I wonder, is Christ central in your marriage? Do you read and pray together? I wonder, is Christ central in the home? Do you give thanks before each meal? I wonder, is Christ central when you gather with friends? Is Christ's name ever mentioned? <clears throat> I wonder, is your life marked as someone who faces God at the center of all things? You know, if we're to, if we're to love and enjoy God, we need to get back to this place of submission again, full submission. If we want to see God move in our lives and in this community in these days, this is the place we need to get to. This is the revival we need. They returned 
to the word of God, we must return to the word of God. They return to prayer. I mean seeking God's feelings. That type of prayer that Trevor spoke of. Praying until they knew God was in them. They return to holy life. And how in these days we need to return to that place. No compromise. And living for God. And all that is found within his work. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this evening and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great revival that happened here in the centre of the book of Nehemiah. We thank you for the great lessons that we can learn from within it. We thank you that we see a people who honoured and placed God's word centre in all that they did. We thank you, Father, that as we read this, that we see a people who submitted wholly to the word of God. We see a people who signed this document to say that they were going to live this no matter what. This is all that mattered to them. Father, today as you look at your people and your church in this province, <clears throat> Father, we wouldn't blame you for your heart being saddened. But Father, we pray that within our lives this evening, that Father, you would help us to search our own hearts, that you would show us our sin, that we would confess it. Father, we look ahead to things that we have planned. Father, we realize that you're not going to bless unless we're found living as people who are wholly committed to your word. And find that our knees in full dependence on you. Father, do what it takes to bring us to that place. Bring us to our knees. And help us to be dependent on you. And Father, we pray that as we do that, and as your spirit moves in our lives, that Father, you will do great things for your glory here in this community of grief. Father, bless us now as we come to this time of prayer. Father, we come to seek your face. We come to praise your name. Because, Father, you're the God who is worthy of our praise. Father, we come to ask you to remember us. And to move in our lives and to move in our family's life. And to save precious souls. Do us good, we pray, Father. Father, help us in this time. Father, we pray indeed that you would break through in this place tonight. That we would know that God is present with us. Bless us, we pray. We ask this in the Savior's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.